made at the beginning of the year, though, was to regularly update you on uh, the finances of our church. And uh, we didn't do that as well in the first quarter. We made a strong comeback with a report in the second quarter. And today's third quarter reporting time, and we're going to do that. Aaron's going to make a short presentation at the end of our service today about where we stand financially. Also, in that commitment which we made was to help encourage you from the pulpit, from uh, the Scriptures, about giving, about what, why do we give? What is the purpose of giving? Uh, and uh, I think we all would confess that we struggle with that. I mean, if we're being honest, we all struggle with giving in some way, in some, in some way. And so um, as we were singing How Great Thou Art, uh, the psalm we read last night with our family at the dinner table was Psalm 19. And uh, Psalm 19, the first six verses say this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The voice goes out through all the earth. And their words to the ends of the world. In them He has set a, a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Psalm 19 came to mind over how great thou art, because it's passages like this, which that hymn writer remembered as he wrote this hymn. And the connection for us in giving is, this is the God that we are giving to. We're giving to the God who made the sun that takes its course in joy because He made it to take its course in joy. We're giving to the God which the psalmist says owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We're giving to the God who has made everything and the earth and the heavens are His possession. And so you may be asking, I may be asking questions like, why are we giving to this God? Why are we giving to Him who has everything? And some of us were raised in, in churches that really emphasized hard the 10% rule, tithing. You know, that was the emphasis where I grew up was 10%. Some of you grew up there. Statistics tell us that in 2000, 23% of evangelicals gave nothing to God's kingdom and His work. A quarter of God's people didn't give a dime. 12% gave 10%. The average Christian gave 600 The average evangelical gave $634 in 2000. And so we have to ask the question. I have to ask myself the question. Is this giving that I'm doing in keeping with the grace of this God? Does it, is it, would someone look at that and say, would someone look at what I do in my giving and say, He serves a big God. 
Or would they look at my giving and say, He serves another God. Randy Alcorn said this, Thunder follows lightning. When the lightning of God's grace has struck the life, the thunder of giving resounds. So I ask the question to you and to me. If our books were laid open, our lives were laid bare, would the people we're around each day, would our neighbors, would our friends, would our co-workers, would our fellow church members say, boy, he must serve a big God to give that much on so little? He independent on himself for tomorrow's bread. He's depending on God in heaven. That's a tough question to answer. That's one I've had to wrestle with all week and had to think about. And, and, I, and as I think about it, things come back to mind about my childhood growing up as they might yours. Like second rounds of the offering plate. In, 19, in the early 1980s, the church I grew up in was in terrible financial positions. And it was not uncommon for us to pass the plate on Sunday morning at the beginning of the service. The deacons go count, and they come back and say, we're going to pass the plate again. If we don't, we won't be able to pay the bills this week. I've been in those services. I've been in the services where manipulation took place, and I was made to feel awful, and, you know, and I, I ponied up whatever little I could, okay? And I don't want today to be that. But I'll be honest with you. I really feel myself in, in good company. I'm very, those who know me know, I'm very uh, sensitive about having to speak on giving. I look back over the sermons in this church's history, and seven years now, uh, this week, seven years, Grace Fellowship has been a body, and we've had a sermon series of three sermons on giving. That's it. So it's, if you've been here a lot, uh, you know, that's something I shy away from, all right? But I, I've, I've been rightly corrected, I think, by men like Randy Alcorn, who uh, apprises that Christ, 15% of the words Christ spoke on the earth, recorded for us at least, were on money. Combined, heaven and hell don't even come close Christ spoke on money more than anything else in his ministry as we have it recorded. He said these kinds of things. <laughs> One thing you lack, go, sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. It's interesting, isn't it, how we want to explain those verses away, but it's clear when you read it. Doesn't it just smack you that Jesus didn't say you receive treasure in heaven from following him? That's not what he said in this passage. He said, sell everything you've got and then you've laid up treasure in heaven when you give it to the poor. Then you come follow me. It's interesting. Blessed are you poor, he said, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Woe, same passage, to you rich, for you have received your great reward. Luke 6.20. Jesus said things like, Whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A person's life does not consist in the possessions that he has. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Sell your possessions and give alms. Provide yourselves with purses in heaven. Luke twelve thirty three. Maybe the most moving passage. Zacchaeus said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and I will repay each man four times what I took. So as Zacchaeus said, Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house. He didn't say that at the tree, though I think that's when salvation began to beam light into Zacchaeus' life. He said it after the response of Zacchaeus because the lightning bolt of grace brings the thunder of giving. You see? Did he get to go to heaven because he gave away a lot of stuff? No, no, no. The proof that he was headed to heaven was he gave away a lot of stuff. And so we ask the question, I have to ask the question, if my books are open in front of you, my fellow church people or the world, would anyone say, based on that, this guy serves a God that is great? I don't know. I really don't. I've, since my young years, been raised from my college years on men like Randy Alcorn and the Treasure Principle. Released in 2001, that little book revolutionizes life for you. Uh, but don't get it unless you're ready to be stepped on. It will get in your kitchen and fry the chicken. John Piper, his little small pamphlet, Desiring God, pages 157 to page 168. I remember it from 12 years ago. It got all over me. And less known to the whole world, but maybe more known to us in this part of the world, a man named Frank Barker. His little book, Flight Path, I brought it in the pulpit because I want you to have this book. I'm willing to buy you this book. I believe this biography... Uh, autobiography-like, journal-like, will change you. It changed me. And I, and I just turned there as an example of, of what I think happens when the lightning bolt strikes, thunderous giving comes out. This is what happened. I don't normally read to you, but I want to read to you. The whole book's written in this style. It's like a journal. What do you think? Barbara and I stood in front of our children in the living room. They were old enough now, and we thought their opinion must be considered. Anita was 18. She was headed to the great southern school, Auburn University, my alma mater. Of course, I'm not biased, he says. Barbara came to me concerned that Anita wouldn't be able to be involved in some of the things in college, activities, because our level of giving was maxed out. She said to Frank, we cannot impose our way of life on our children. We have to discuss it with him. All right, I agreed. Let's get them together and ask their opinion. When everyone had gathered, I asked Frank Jr., Anita, and Peggy, up to this point, 
Your mother and I have made the decision about how much of our family income to give to the Lord, but now you are starting to go off to college, and the decision will affect what activities you can enter into. So we believe you should have a part in making the decision. We're wrestling with whether we should back off some in our giving. Things have been very tight financially this year. Your mom and I would like you to pray about how much of our salary we should give. Little comment, at this point, we were giving 75% of our salary to the kingdom of God. When the lightning bolt of grace strikes, the thunder of giving comes out. I'm not there. Matter of fact, when I read that, I read it again. It was about, it was real late at night. I was laying in bed. Amy was asleep. I woke her up and read it to her. 75%. The end of the story is this. Frank III, not Junior, excuse me, Frank III settled the issue. He stood up and said, God has never let us down. I don't think we should step back from our present level of giving. Nita Anita, the girl going to Auburn, who loves pretty things, enjoys going out with her friends and going to her grandmother's country club, was also in agreement with Frank. I don't either. I believe we should continue to give to the Lord at our present level. However, I don't think we should, I, I don't think we should increase it again this year. That's the girl heads in her bet. 75% is enough. I need the 25%. I'm going to college. Peggy also followed in by saying she believed it was God's will for us to give. What we were giving. And why do I read you that example? Because I believe that because of his life and Barbara's life, not that one event, but their whole life, their children have begun to believe soundly, firmly, a foundation, as Paul says, giving does. When you give, a foundation is being built. Paul said that in 1 Timothy 6. Build a foundation. And he's talking about giving. And Frank built that over years and his children saw it. And they knew the God Frank was giving to that made the heavens and the earth. And they said, if you give 75% away today, 25% is plenty for us to live on. And I'm not, I don't think my kids would say that. I'm just being honest. I don't, I don't think they would look at me as radical in giving. I don't think they would. But I... Pray that by the grace of God one day, they might say that about their daddy. Laying up treasure in heaven. You can also look at men who've come before us like George Mueller or John Wesley. Wesley. I choose Wesley's story. Born in 1703. Not, not like some booming age where everybody was rich. 1703. In 1731, he began to limit his expenses. He was a traveling evangelist. And he, at at, uh, the ripe old age of his late 20s, decided, I've made enough money. I don't need to make any more. So he limited it. He looked at his expenses and he said, I make 30 pounds a year. I can live off 28. Two pounds went to the kingdom of God that first year. And that year he stumbled upon the passage again which said, 
to the one who sows seed, the one who supplies the seed gives more seed to be sown. And he said, it's true. I got 60 pounds to live off of that year, the next year. So how much did he live off of? 58 pounds? Oh, no, 28 pounds. And he gave 32 pounds away. He was entering a test with God. Malachi 3, verse 10. Test me. Test me, God said, in giving. Test me and see what I can do. He entered the test. The third year in the giving test, 90 pounds came in. So he lived off 58 pounds, right? 28 pounds. Gave away 62 pounds. In his entire life, he never, if ever, lived above 30 pounds. In 1776, the tax man wrote him a letter and said, a guy who makes your kind of money must be cheating us on excise tax. You've got silver somewhere you're not telling us about. He wrote back and said, I have two silver spoons in Bristol and two silver spoons in London. Until they run out, I need no more silver. At the peak of his career... He made 1,400 pounds in one year, and he gave it all away but 30. In his 30,000-pound earning over his lifetime, it's estimated he gave away close to 90% when you add it all up. He never possessed more than 100 pounds at any one time in his life. Never. In 1791... At 87 years old, he was ready to die. In his will, he wrote this. I cannot help leaving my books behind me whenever God calls me. But in every other respect, my own hands will be the executors of my will. And he lived it. When he died, the only money in his possession were a few coins in his pocket. And a bag with a few coins in his dresser. That's all he had. Why? Because he believed the passage we're going to look at today. He believed that to take your earthly goods and give them to God was to lay up great treasure in heaven. He believed it. He believed you could have a savings account in either heaven are on the earth. But you couldn't have one in both places where your heart resided. And so he gave it away. Luke 12 is where he got that idea. He got it from Jesus Christ himself. And so we look at that passage. While you're turning to Luke 12, just a, just a couple of more things that Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then, in his joy, he sold everything he had so he could have the field. Jesus saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of the others. But God said to the man who would build bigger barns, which is what we're about to read, 
you're a fool. You're going to build bigger barns? You're a fool. That's what he said. Luke 9, 58. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So follow me. That was what he followed that statement up with. Matthew 23, 23. Jesus said over and over. He, he was radical about his, his commandments to give. And look what he said. He even endorsed the system of tithing from the Old Testament as the beginning point. He said, you tithe, you tithe, you Pharisees, tithe, even your spices. That's right, you should, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You've, you've given your tithe of just what you owe, but you haven't given what you really should give. Okay, so we look at Luke 12. And I want to read the passage and just make comments about it. And this is, this is really a, a homily on this passage. A homily. A running commentary. Just to pull out the main points. Things you should see and I should see as we go here. The first thing we should see is that fools lay up treasure on earth. That's what Jesus said. Luke twelve thirteen. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus said, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. The man just wants his inheritance, Jesus. And Jesus said, be on guard against covetousness. Ten commandments, three of them deal with covetousness. Deal with making money your God. Three of them. Take care, be on guard, lest covetousness consume you. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. As a farmer's son, I can make commentary on this. Farmers don't make crops. Farmers sow seed and God makes crops. The problem here is the man thought he made the crop. It's mine. And his solution for it was, I don't have enough barns, I'm going to store it. Fools lay up treasure on earth. God gave the man the crop. And what he intended for the man to do was to be a conduit. To take what God had given him and pour it out on others. John Piper says, we know we are conduits as Christians in the evangelical world. The problem is we think our conduit should be lined with gold. When copper will do. You ever been there? Oh, I want to give after I build bigger barns. Jesus said in this parable, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tear down my old barns and I'm going to build larger ones. Okay, that was commentary on America for the decade previous to 2008. We got big barns, but oh, they're kind of old. They're at least a decade. We'll tear those down and build some new ones. Didn't really need it, just wanted it. 
And so, after I build them, I'll have plenty of grain and, and I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You cannot serve God and money. That's what Jesus would say to this man. He says it later, but it's what he would say to him. When you chose to take it, keep it for yourself so your soul could find rest in it, you're not God's. God said to this man, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The problem is not riches. The problem's not big salaries. The problem's not that your company succeeds. That's not the problem. The problem is, too many of us are saying, my soul finds rest, relaxation, and enjoyment because I have success in monetary things. And it comes out in us as Christians when we respond the way we do to hard times. Hard times come and we immediately circle the wagons and begin to lay up for tomorrow. I mean, it's crazy to give now. It's hard times. We give when it's good times. When it's hard times, you keep. The Gentiles give this way. That's what Jesus would say. The Gentiles give that way. You're no different than they are. That doesn't tell them your God's big. That tells them your God lives in a bank account. And so, that's the statement of Christ about treasure. That's the first thing I think we should see is fools lay up their treasure on the earth. Money is not the problem. The problem is, so often money becomes our God. Jesus does not share the throne of my life with a bank account. He won't. He doesn't. Second principle we see in this passage from Jesus' words are, the more we focus on worldly possessions, the more anxious we become. Jesus follows up this man's question of tell that brother of mine that sorry no good to give me what's coming to me in inheritance. Jesus tells him the parable about laying up treasure and then he says do not be anxious. The more we focus on what we should have earthly the more anxious we become. And look this time he flips the script. He preached at the rich folks last paragraph now he wants to preach at the poor folks. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, about your body, what you will put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. That's not a statement you make necessarily to rich people. That's a statement you make to all people, rich or poor. Because poor people that spend all their time worried about where their next strip of clothing is coming from are just as guilty of making possessions their God as the rich man who tears down a barn and builds up new barns. You see it? Nobody gets exempt in Jesus' way of talking about money. Everybody can be guilty. So you're sitting here and you make $20,000 a year and you say, well, 
Man, I ain't got any newborns. I'm fine. Jesus says, yeah, but you worried yesterday. And your anxiousness came because you were going to have to eat cream of wheat. And you wanted the steak. Your anxiousness came because your friend came by and she just bought a nice dress. And your family doesn't even have enough money to finish the month. And you got anxious about it. Who's God? Where is He? You got anxious and it showed that your God is your money, not God. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than a bird? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Anxiousness comes from focusing on worldly possessions, whether you're poor or rich. And your anxiousness does you no good. Let's be honest. The economy's gotten bad and a lot of us have been worrying. Has the economy gotten better? No. It's gotten worse. And your personal economy may be getting bad and it may be getting worse. And the more you worry about it, that doesn't equal getting better. And so we see here in Jesus' teaching that anxiousness does you no good. You can't add one hour to your life. If then you are not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about all of these other things? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will He clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. It just doesn't get any plainer than that. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. We should not seek earthly treasure, next principle, because God gives us what we need. This is not go home and sit on a mountain and wait on Jesus to come back. We got the command not to do that from Paul. This is Jesus' way of saying, do your work with no regard to how much money you make because God knows how much money you need. If you want to preach the gospel to your co-workers, work as if you get no paycheck. And when they say, but it's bad here at work, man, how are you making it? I don't understand. Why aren't you worrying? I serve a big God. He knows everything I need. Man, we're trying to rearrange our 401ks. Why aren't you doing anything? Because my God made the sun that goes across the sky in its circuit. It does it with joy. He feeds ravens and clothes lilies. He knows what I need. We talk about who our God is by where our treasure is because that's where our heart is. And that's obviously a principle here. We should, next principle, seek the kingdom of God. And all our earthly needs will be taken care of by God. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. 
Instead of seeking after the worldly things, seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. What better promise do we need than that one? Then seek the kingdom of God and all your needs will be added to you. You say, yeah, but Carl, I know this poor guy. He's a real Christian. I know he is. And he eats at the soup kitchen. What about him? He eats at the soup kitchen. I don't mean that callously. I mean, he has what he needs. Somewhere in the 20th century, in our hearts, it became our birthright to own houses have retirement accounts, and live easy lives. This promise doesn't promise that. But it does promise, as David said, I've been young, and I've been old, and I've yet to see a child of God beg for bread. It doesn't say you won't have to have a handout from someone kind enough to give you from their overflow. But it does say you will have what you need. And those are dangerous words. I know they are because we live in a society that is so materialistic. And I'm saying this about myself here. We're like fish who swim in water. When someone asks the fish to define water, He has no clue because he's surrounded by it and it's just his life. And as a child born in 1977, I swim in materialism and I can't even define it for you because it's just normal for me. So I'm not fussing at you. I'm saying I'm guilty. That's the world we live in is in a materialistic, get-all-you-can, can-all-you-get world. That's where we live. And so we are fools if we think we haven't been impacted by it. Even if we give 50% of what we own, we're still impacted by it. We have to readily, daily be checking our hearts against materialism. Where is your treasure That's where your heart is. The final statement that I would make is we should give to the kingdom work in this day because that is the way we will be able to lay up treasure in heaven. One of the main ways in the gospel seen to lay up treasure in heaven is to give, give, give. Look at what Jesus says. This is in the Luke account of his teaching. Verse 32. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He has given us the kingdom through His Son. And it was His good pleasure to do it. Look what He says. Sell your possessions and give them to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure 
in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so the statement was, whatever holds your treasure, holds your heart. If your money bag on the earth holds your treasure, it has your heart. But if your money bag is in heaven, you can be sure your heart is there also. Because grace comes into your life like a lightning bolt. And the response of your life is thunderous giving. I've said that, and I've said it, and I've said it. So how do we change? We need models. Point blank, we need people to give us this example. And so I speak to the older people in this congregation. If you're, if you're childless at home now, or you're, you're, or you're over 50, I just want to ask you, would you be a model to us, younger generation? We need you. In our day, it's popular to talk about prayer warriors. And I've known a few. We need giving warriors. We've made giving so secretive, so private, that nobody sees it. And so the younger generation doesn't even know what you're doing. Now, I'm not telling you to run around bragging about what you give. But I'm telling you to give at such a level that everyone around you says, I want to know what drives that giving. I want to know the God He serves. And it's got to come from the top. The olders. So I'm asking you to give. In your latter years, give more. He said, but my financial planner, he says it's foolish. I know, I think of it this way. In our financial planner's office, I imagine that a little widow comes in and she sits down. She don't have a lot. It's obvious. She sits down, head dropped, and the financial planner says, what can I do for you? Kind of snide. He knows she doesn't have a lot of money. He's already thinking, you know, well, probably I'll take what little she's got, put it in a mutual fund, something safe, get her through her latter years. That's probably what I'll do. She says, I got a problem. I, I know you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Absolutely. Well, I got a problem. I feel led to give. I, I, I've got in my bank account, I've got what I need to live these last days. But I feel this strong compulsion from God to give it. And if I do, I don't have any kids. I don't have any way to make it up. I don't have a job. The same day, just before that, this man in his office had a strapping 45-year-old come in and talk about his wealth. See, he had the best year of his life. And he was thinking about how to keep as much as he could. And the planner had helped him had set up all kinds of ways that he could keep all he could keep. But now the planner's heart is convicted because as this little woman sits in front of him, he can't find the heart to disagree with Jesus 
And he knows Jesus said, the widow gave more than everybody. It kind of rung hollow to show her how to multiply her little on the earth for a little bit more when he put in perspective that if she sowed all she had, the eternal harvest would be great. He was stumped. I think we might be stumped. You say it's foolish. I know. The things of God are foolishness to this world. You know, Randy Alcorn, who's been a pastor much longer than I've been even alive probably, He said it this way. He said, we had a 21-year-old singer who became a Christian, read the Bible. He became convicted he should sell his three-bedroom home and give all the money away and live in an apartment because he made enough money on his salary to pay rent. He went to Bible study, sharing it with the people in the Bible study and excited, asking them to pray. And one by one, the elder saints in the Bible study talked him out of it because it was foolish. And I think sometimes we're guilty. We're talking ourselves and others out of radical obedience because it looks foolish. Now, I haven't mentioned our budget intentionally because this sermon is not about our budget. But in truth of disclosure, we are behind. I'm not worried about that. But we are behind. And if we don't, come back some, we'll make some cuts, hard cuts, okay? Um, But I'm not telling you to sell your house and give it to Grace Fellowship. I'm not telling you to sell your house. I'm asking you to consider the claim that you have made that the lightning bolt of grace has struck you, and I'm wondering if the thunderous giving has come. I'm asking you to consider whether your treasure is here or in heaven. Not with don't please don't play games with God. Don't just say the right things because you know you can say them and we'll all believe it. Two hundred and forty nine people died in a plane crash over the Sea of Japan years ago, a few years back. On the plane was a playboy and his playmate headed on an exotic vacation. Also on the plane was a multimillionaire who was going to make a business deal. On the plane was the son of a missionary. He didn't have anything to his name. And he died. When they asked his dad about the ironic nature of the fact that here your son was with this multimillionaire and this playboy and his playmate, and they all died. Isn't that that strange how life works? I mean, he had nothing, they had everything, and then they all died. And the missionary's comment was, and they will all stand before the same God without their MasterCards, their bank accounts, or their exotic vacations. And the God of the universe will then take account of where their treasure was in this life. So don't play games with it. Don't try to... Do something to make us all feel good. You're going to stand before the Lord. You came with nothing, you leave with nothing. 
No, no hearses pull U-Hauls. We've heard it all. We're behind. And we've been given probably the greatest opportunity in our church's history to give. One of our very own is in Houston, Texas for six months. His living expenses here and there must be covered. He faces the possibility, the real possibility of no part-time job other than this job. And the whole world now, in our little world, is watching. What kind of God do they serve at Grace Fellowship? And we're going to answer largely by the way we care for Him. And so we have great opportunity. So I'm not asking you, I'm not begging you to give all you got to this church. I'm asking you to give. I know this sounds crazy, but I'm asking you to take care of our missionaries because the six of them have faced the toughest economic year of their lives. When the world economy falls, missions falls. And so I'm asking you, give. Sow seed. Take care of them. So that, so that the whole world might proclaim the name of your God. I, I just want to close with this. Let the Apostle Paul speak because he speaks much better than I And he's much clearer probably than I've been. And I know it's felt a little different and odd the way I've done today. And I'm sorry if it hasn't been clear enough. But this passage, and we'll close, I'm going to pray immediately after reading it. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. The Apostle Paul says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows with blessing bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Carlton, I feel guilty. Don't feel guilty. Convicted, but not guilty. Because I'm not asking you to do anything that's not in your heart. But I am telling you, if giving is not in your heart, Based on the authority of God's Word, the grace of God isn't there either. Okay? I think Paul would say, test God. And why do I say that? Because that's what he says, really. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which though 
Through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You say, that sounds like health, wealth, and prosperity. That's the trick about every heresy. It has a little truth. Notice he didn't say you get rich to be rich. He said, you get more seed to sow. The more you sow, the more he gives you to sow. The bigger the conduit gets so it can conduct more grace. To much, to whom much is given, much is required. All those statements are about this principle. You sow into the kingdom and God then pours out His goodness into you so you might sow more into the kingdom. Not so you might buy a Rolex or a nice house or a fancy car. So you might give to the poor. That's what Paul would say. That's the twist of the lie. Sow so you get. No, sow so you can sow more. And sow more so you get more to sow. For the ministry of His service, this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Father, Your righteousness endures forever. 